Hello and welcome to Paincast, conversations on pain and physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I'm Tiffany, a physiotherapy student at the University of Toronto. Today, it's my pleasure to have Dr. Mark Hancock joining us. Mark is a professor of physiotherapy at Macquarie University in Sydney. He has over 20 years of clinical experience as a musculoskeletal physiotherapist working in a primary care setting. Mark now works primarily as a researcher, focusing on the diagnosis and management of back pain. He has published over 200 pre-reviewed papers, and his work has been accompanied by editorials and received wide media attention. He is a part of the RESTORE trial, which is the largest clinical trial recently published on cognitive functional therapy, a biopsychosocial model of care for back pain. In this episode, we talked about what cognitive functional therapy is, CFT in short, discussed various aspects of the recent RESTORE trial, as well as practical questions around implementing CFT. Enjoy! Hi Mark, how are you doing today? I'm very well, thank you Tiffany. Thank you so much for coming on to Paincast to talk to our audience about cognitive functional therapy in the recent RESTORE trial. To start off, can you tell our audience who are you and what you're doing? Sure, I'm a physiotherapist or a physical therapist, depending on where you're from. Um, so trained in Sydney um, quite a long time ago and worked in Sydney, you know, in our public health system and also our private health system, mostly looking after people with musculoskeletal pain. Um, I worked in America for a few years and then came back to Australia and continued to do um, some clinical work, but moved progressively into more research. I now work at a university um, teaching physio students and doing research. Today's podcast is about cognitive functional therapy, which was the main subject of the research that was recently published by your research group. Can you introduce cognitive functional therapy to those who aren't familiar with this? Sure. So cognitive functional therapy, I guess, is a framework for delivering evidence-based biopsychosocial care. And I think that's important to understand. It's really built on what we know about back pain and the complexity of back pain. So it involves therapists trying to, I guess, assess patients really deeply to understand the range of different things that are contributing to their pain and particularly their disability. So, um, you know, looking at physical factors, but emotional factors, cognitive factors, um, and then exploring these as well in a physical examination that also includes some behavioural experiments and with a strong focus on the activities that really matter to patients. So really focusing on those and seeing if we can find ways to reduce people's pain and, and also get people very much back to living um, with those and, and doing the things that they really love and care. I see. In our current practice, we try to keep in mind of the biopsychosocial model, especially when we treat low back pain or neck pain. How does cognitive functional therapy stand out in applying the biopsychosocial model for these kind of patients? Sure. Look, it's it's a really good question. And it's a question that lots of people ask us. And I guess we've been grappling with in terms of where to next. But I suppose one thing to explain is that when we did the training for this trial, we took quite experienced physiotherapists who, who would definitely argue that they practice from a biopsychosocial model. But during the training, it was really evident, and they very much expressed this, that 
they found it really difficult to do it well. So I guess part of this is that even though, you know, we talk about biopsychosocial care, actually doing it really well is, is really difficult. So there's a lot of skill sets that are required to do that well. So, you know, if you think about the history, you know, really taking time and really exploring the range of factors, you know, we, we typically don't explore people's beliefs and emotions and, and really, I guess, get to deeply understanding what's, you know, what's potentially driving their pain. So it's, it's really taking the skill sets that physiotherapists have anyway, um, but developing these and, and expanding them. And I suppose in the physical exam, you know, that's one area that's quite clearly different where there's, I guess, these behavioural experiments where we're really kind of focusing on the activities that people talk about being problematic or that they avoid and, and exposing people to these and, and assessing their responses to those, both physically, how they move, but also emotionally, how they feel and their beliefs about those. So that becomes quite a powerful way of changing behaviour. What I'm hearing is that the difference is really from acknowledging the biopsychosocial model to really applying it, put it into practice. And that's what the framework of the cognitive functional therapy really helps. Yeah, I think that's a beautiful description. Mm -hmm. To help our audience visualize this therapy model a little better, can you describe how it usually goes? Look, I can try. Um, I guess one critical element is that it's individualized. So when you say how it usually goes, it's really important to understand that it is different for every person. And that's that's really critical to this approach. So it's not bringing any preconceived beliefs that you know anybody needs anything particular. So for some patients, understanding their beliefs and their cognitions will be absolutely critical. But for other patients, it'll be much more about their movement or physical factors or strength. So it has to start with a very, I suppose, open mind and open framework for, for what will be the drivers um, for an individual patient. So you talked a little bit about behavioural experiments. Where does this fit in the whole therapy process? It sits within the physical examination. So I guess, you know, at the end of the history, you've got a strong sense of the movements that a person is either, as I said, fearful of doing or avoiding, etc. And I guess often in physical therapy, we might avoid those movements and, and not go there. But But in this assessment, it's very much getting the person to try to do those movements and exploring ways of changing how they move and think and feel in a way that improves their, you know, ability to do that. And sometimes that's amazingly rapid. You know, we saw some patients in the trial, in the training for the trial in particular, who had been avoiding activities for a long, long time um, and pretty much purely because they thought something bad would happen. They actually hadn't even tried to do it for a long period of time. So, you know, it was amazing to see these people suddenly bend and lift a weight off the ground for example that they hadn't done in many many years and you know for some of the patients that was you know they, they changed right in front of your eyes and radically and, and you could just see their brain kind of exploding with my goodness you know what why have I not been doing this for so long and and you know that real awareness of what they've missed out on in life so so some people change very rapidly some people are very difficult to change we took a really difficult group of patients in this trial and that's important you know these were patients with very high levels of disability and distress and you know we don't want to pretend that you know it's just easy and everybody changes rapidly that's not the case but but the results do show that a lot of the change that occurred for people occurred quite quickly and yeah that's a really good thing how i understand cognitive functional therapy is really addressing the interplay between the 
cognition side of things, how they understand, how they believe about their back pain, and also the functional side of things, which includes how they think they can move, how what they think they can do, and really help them getting back to the functional activities that they used to do or they want to do. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And maybe one thing that we need to emphasize more is this idea that, you know, we often talk about the therapist being a coach. So rather than, you know, it, it, it's so much part of our model, I guess, that we inadvertently, we become the fixers and patients need to come and see us to get fixed. And, you know, that sends a lot of messages to patients. You know, it doesn't grow self-efficacy. It doesn't give them the skills to manage their own pain. So, you know, it's a big mindset shift to think that the time we spend with the patients is about empowering them to be able to manage themselves. So, you know, these um, exposure experiments, they, they don't stop there. They become the movements and the exercises, the therapy, et cetera, that the patient, you know, goes on to do themselves at home. And, you know, that can be pure exercise as such, but it's very much embedding it into daily life. So, you know, as we know, it's not much point just getting people to do five minutes of exercise and then going back to whatever they did before. So, yeah, this very strong focus on, on upskilling people to manage themselves. And that's that's a lot of the, the feedback that we got from patients. And we also believe that that contributes strongly to the long-term effects with this intervention. So, you know, one of the things that we're most pleased about in this trial is that the effects stayed equally as big, if not got marginally bigger, by 12 months. And that seems sensible. You know, if you give patients the skills to manage, you know, their back pain, you you help them understand their back pain so that when they do have a flare-up in the future, instead of feeling that everything's gone wrong and the world's fallen apart, you know, they feel that they've got the skill set then to kind of manage those episodes or those flare-ups themselves. So that's really important as well. One of the things I really appreciate CFT is that coach model. It's to coming alongside with the patients and empowering them to find out ways of self-managing and have self-efficacy over back pain. So I really appreciate that. We've mentioned the trial quite a few times, but to set the stage of discussion for what's to follow, can you describe a little more what this trial mean, briefly highlighting its methods and the results? Yeah, absolutely. So quite simply, it was a randomized controlled trial. We took 492 patients who all had chronic, um, persistent, disabling back pain, and we randomized them into one of three treatment groups. So one group um, was the usual care group, and they just continued to do whatever care they were currently doing or they wanted to do or was recommended by their clinician. The next group was a cognitive functional therapy group that received CFT, as we've been talking about. And the third group received CFT, plus also wore movement sensors, wireless movement sensors, um, and that enabled the therapist to understand the movement better, I suppose, but also to provide biofeedback both in the clinic um, and at home. And in summary, what we found was that um, there was no difference between the two CFT groups. So the addition of the biofeedback didn't seem to provide any additional benefit. But both of the CFT groups were a lot better than the control group. And that was for all of our outcomes, which was important as well. So um, disability on the Roland Morris disability questionnaire was their primary outcome. So they were improved in that, but they were improved in all of our secondary outcomes, you know, including self-efficacy, global perceived effect, fear avoidance, um, these kind of measures. So, so all of our secondary outcomes improved. And as I already mentioned, you know, what we're almost most pleased about is that the effects um, were sustained. 
um, and they were sustained out to 12 months. I suppose just briefly in terms of the therapy, the CFT, what did that involve? So it was seven sessions over about three months. And then in this trial, we included a booster session at six months because we thought it was important to kind of get patients back in, um, check that they were going okay. And again, you know, really just make sure that they were able to self-manage um, themselves going forward. Can you also describe a little bit what usual care entail? Sure. So it, it wasn't controlled by us in any way. So we basically, now we recruited patients from all over the place. So we recruited some patients, for example, from a surgeon. Um, if he felt that they weren't immediate surgical candidates. So, you know, these were really quite disabled people that were at that point. And he could have referred them um, anywhere, you know. Um, they, If they, for example, they, they weren't allowed to be planning to have surgery within the next three months, but some of them could have had surgery at six months or 12 months. It, it was literally whatever the patients ended up receiving. Um, it could have been physiotherapy, it could have been acupuncture, you know, it, it could have been anything that they chose to receive or, or that somebody recommended for them. Okay, so in summary, the usual care is just whatever the patient decides to do and have been doing or choose not to do. And the CFT groups received seven sessions with the physiotherapist and a booster session at 26 weeks. And you measured disability and pain and many other secondary outcomes at three months, six months, a few more in between, and then a year after, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. One of the very interesting things is to see the changes in pain and function sustained over a year. You talked a little bit about um, some of the factors that may be driving this, but I would want you to elaborate a little more of, do you know why this effect sustained for a year? Uh, were there any fluctuations over time? And I know that uh, your team is going to have a three-year follow-up, which is coming up pretty soon. Are there any insights of what you might expect to find? So in terms of reasons for it, you know, nothing a lot more than what I guess I've already described. That, to be honest, it makes sense that this intervention should work long-term. Um, you know, if we give patients... Um, the skills to manage their pain. And there's a strong focus um, within the therapy that, for example, flare-ups are normal. So, you know, again, I think as therapists, we want to kind of avoid that. We want to, you know, I've fixed you, I'm a fixer, you're okay. But we know, we know that 70, 80% of people will have flare-ups within a year or so. There's lots of good data around that. So preparing patients for that is really powerful. And if people are prepared for that, then it doesn't worry them as much when it occurs. So um, I think dealing with the likelihood of recurrences and preparing was important. Helping patients have a much better understanding of pain, you know, so that again, they didn't, they don't attach the threat and the fear and the worry to pain. Um, so really changing their beliefs. And I guess something that I think is really powerful about CFT is that it's it's not just sitting down and talking to patients about pain the way we might think of in kind of modern pain science. Because of the kind of exposure therapies, et cetera, it, it becomes real for patients. And, and I think that's something that really stood out to me as I watched the training, you know, compared with just sitting, you know, we, we would never sit down and talk about pain in the way that you might think of in a pure pain science education. It's very much more from the patient's perspective and it's very much more experiential. So you know how hard it is to change anyone's belief about anything. But CFT is a really clever process when you watch really skillful therapists. They're not 
actually telling the patients the answers. The patients are getting to the answers themselves. So you're kind of walking them through this questioning process where you point out sometimes discrepancies. You're saying, well, you know, um, look, I, I understand that, you know, you feel that your back pain is related to, to this damage in your back. But it's interestingly, you're also telling me that when you're active and you move, you feel less pain. You know, wh why do you think that might be? And, and, you know, I noticed that when we did this experiment, this happened to your pain. How do you understand that? So, you know, it's getting patients to kind of walk through that themselves. And it's really powerful when patients come up with a different model of pain themselves. So I guess that's one of the other things that I think really contributes that we've dug deep enough and worked with patients enough to truly change their beliefs, not given them, you know, just what we think is right. And they kind of accept that until they have another flare up and, you know, then their world falls apart. So, yeah, I, I really think it's that coach model that you mentioned before. It's giving patients the skill set um, to manage themselves. Yeah, I, you know, ultimately, I think they're the reasons for the, for the long-term effects. In terms of three-year, yeah, we're very excited. Um, I think we're only a couple of months off finishing those. I'm not sure of the exact date, um, but we don't have any results from that yet. There. It all circles back to the coach model rather than the fixer model, because if if it's a fixer model, the patients are dependent on the healthcare provider to take away their pain, which means that in a year, they, which when they lose access to the healthcare provider, they may not have the strategies or the self-efficacy to deal with their pain. Yeah, that, that really yeah. makes sense. And I really appreciate and, and this really fascinates me as an educator as well. You know, I'm educating, you know, young physio students. And in some ways that's easier because you're starting with this kind of clean slate. But, you know, we're in a class the other day and they were basically running through some case studies and really delivering care. And you could see this tension for them that they they know what they should be del delivering is this kind of coach model and just helping people develop the skill sets to look after themselves, et cetera. But they're torn. They're, there's this sense that I need to put my hands on, I need to do something, you know, if, even if I just add it to the stuff they really need. There's there's still this sense as therapists that, you know, we need to fix and the patients won't be happy if we don't provide that. But but it's actually not true. You know, it's not what the patients tell us, you know, um, you know, when you do qualitative studies, et cetera, you know, the patients really value this switch in role. And, and I don't think they do come to therapists just looking for a quick fix, but, but it's something that I think holds us back sometimes in the way we manage patients. On that line of thought, any patients get disappointed that nothing was done on them, no manual therapy, no electrophysical therapy? Yeah, that's a great question. So we didn't explicitly, you know, I mean, as you know, we've got broad questions around satisfaction of care and stuff, but we didn't explicitly ask that as part of the data collection, but as part of my role in running the trial, so I ran the Sydney arm of the trial. So we really ran half the patients in Perth in Western Australia and half through Sydney. Um, and so I would speak to therapists and patients. And to be honest, I, I heard the bad stories, not the good stories, you know, along the way as you do with the trial. And there definitely were patients, you know, who contacted me, et cetera, and were not happy, you know. And, and so the results on average are great and we're really pleased with them. But by no means is this, you know, have we solved everything, you know, that we need to. There's definitely patients that we couldn't help. There's definitely patients who, as you said, wanted some of those more traditional um, passive type of therapy. So, yeah, there's a lot of work to be done in that space. And, and we're still interested in 
for those patients who didn't do well, is it something about those patients that this is not the right therapy? Or is it that we just need to be better at delivering this therapy for those really difficult patients, you know? Because it's very much a journey. We put a, a fair bit of time into training these clinicians and you know that. But I think they would very much tell you that it was still a developing skill. You know, they continued to get better and they continue to get better at this. It wasn't something that, you know, they were perfect at delivering straight away. Mm -hmm. Let's say there was room for improvement for CFT for particular patients that are more difficult. What do you see would be an aspect or some aspects of improvement that CFT would need to evolve, let's say? Yeah, well, that's an interesting question. So it's, it's does CFT need to evolve or does, you know, the training of therapists, you know, and, and therapists, et cetera, need to evolve? To be honest, some people are always going to find, some therapists will always find this therapy to, difficult to deliver because it, it does require a certain mindset. It also requires outstanding communication, the ability to really build connection with a patient. Do you know what I mean? To take a patient on a journey, to expose them to something that they're very fearful of sometimes. You know, they are really difficult skill sets. So, uh, you know, in terms of how do we help those difficult patients, you know, I, I think it is, we probably don't know all the answers, but but I think we need to continue to think about further upskilling clinicians to be better with those really difficult patients. But we're doing some qualitative work talking to those patients to try to understand their journey and what didn't work for them. So hopefully that will inform where we go. I mean, CFT has evolved and, you know, I only got involved with CFT more recently. And one of the things that I, I like as I look at it is that the developers, et cetera, have been willing to evolve. So for example, early on, it was actually called classification-based cognitive functional therapy. And it did put people into groups. And for a while, I kind of liked that as an educator. But but I've really come around to see that a purely individualized model, you know, I think is much more powerful. It's probably more difficult to teach because, again, we like to put people in boxes. You're in this box. That's the kind of therapy you need. But we know that just doesn't really work with people with chronic pain. They're much more complex than that. So, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see in the future whether the model, the recommendations shift slightly, obviously based on whatever evidence continues to come out. Yeah, absolutely. I do acknowledge that it takes a lot of skill to unpack someone's pain, especially when pain is severe and disabling. I was on my first placement right now as a physiotherapy student, and I encounter patients with severe disabling low back pain. And it is sad and frustrating to hear that they're dealing with it and nothing seems to work. A lot of their activities are limited. And how do we unpack that? How do we uh, walk beside the patient? It really takes a lot of skill and I completely agree uh, on that with you. So you mentioned you have done some interviews with the patient. Some patients are happy, some patients are not happy about the trial. Were you able to shed some light on some of that stories, um, views on CFT? Yeah, look, a lot of that work is is still ongoing, so so it's probably difficult to share too much. Look, on the positive side, there's no doubt that patients really reflected back this feeling empowered, you know, having having less pain, but very much also even when they do have pain, having a very different approach to that and it not impacting their life, not 
going back into this cycle of kind of bracing, shutting down, avoiding, and, and just breaking that cycle. You know, I was listening to a patient in one of the media interviews here the other day, just really beautifully talking about that and, and that, you know, she would still in certain, if she was on a plane for a long time, you know, her back might get a bit sore, et cetera, in the same way as it has in the past. But her response to that was completely different. And it now didn't worry her before she would kind of worry about going on a flight and maybe not do it. And, you know, if it did happen, she'd rest afterwards and brace and all this kind of stuff. And and now a completely different response, you know, because she just looks at the world. She just understands her pain and her body so much better. So I think they're the really positive messages. They're the things that we like to hear. I think one of the critical things for our profession, so one of, one of the kind of negative comments from some patients, and I'm sure you've kind of heard this, is a patient saying, oh, I don't like all this, you know, psychological therapy. You know, they don't believe anything's wrong with me and they believe it's all in my head. And that's something that I'm just talking to my students about all the time. So a risk of pain science is that what patients hear is, the pain is all in my head. Like we actually use that word, you know, that you'll you'll see that phrase from pain scientists that they say, you know, pain is, is all in the brain. And that kind of language might work for us to kind of explain physiologically, but that doesn't work for patients. So I think that's one of the things that CFT does beautifully. It understands modern pain science, but I think it explains it to patients in a much better way, in a way that's real for them and based on their experiences. Uh, and of course, individualized, because we all know that the way you explain it to one person needs to be different to another. But again, that's that's the kind of skill set that a lot of clinicians don't have, you know, the ability to adapt how they deliver that kind of information. So, you know, your question was around kind of some of the negative outcomes. And, and yeah, absolutely, despite us not trying to do that, um, some patients still heard that message. So yeah, there's still work to do. Now, again, that cycles back to, are there just a group of patients who are not open to hearing um, some of these different ways of thinking about their pain? Or is it the therapists still need to get better at how they explain it to those more difficult patients? And I think it's both. One of the key bits of work we want to do in the next few months is look at what we might call moderators. So who are the people who responded really well to CFT and who are those who didn't? Um, and that's compared to the control group and that's important. So not just people with a good outcome, but those who truly do well with CFT. And so, for example, one of the measures we looked, we collected at baseline, and we haven't analysed this yet, though, is cognitive flexibility. In other words, some patients come in and they might have all sorts of interesting beliefs that maybe aren't helpful, but they're also the kind of person who's open to changing their belief and their mindset. And if it's really critical part of CFT is about changing beliefs, you know, because as you know, so many of the problems are around these kind of um, incorrect myths around back pain, okay? Um, and so if people are very the kind of person who are easy to change, you know, and open to different ways of thinking, then it kind of makes sense. They may be easier to treat with this kind of approach. But but we want to be able to treat the really difficult patients. You know, we, you know, that's the whole idea of CFT, you know, in lots of ways in this trial was to focus on the really complex patients. So we don't want to just say they're too hard. We want to find solutions for how, how we deal with those patients. Maybe they need more care. 
Maybe they need longer sessions. Maybe they need more experienced therapists. We're not quite sure yet. Yeah, the upcoming research that's coming out from the trial, uh, whether it be the qualitative or the mediator moderator study, would be so interesting to see. So, so far, one of the most important aspects of CFT is the experiential learning part. With that, physiotherapists come alongside with the patient as coaches, take them through movements that would have been fearful for them and helping them in their body realize that it is actually safe to do so. I was curious whether there were instances and how often this can happen where that movement was actually became cause for a flare-up. Yeah, look, really interesting question again. I don't, we don't have great data on that. So it's largely anecdotal from talking to the therapists, et cetera, you know, which we did a lot of along along the way. Um, and just, just my own experiences, et cetera, of delivering this kind of care. So I suppose just stepping back half a step, in the examination, I think what commonly happens is for less experienced therapists who want to do this type of thing is they start exposing a patient and the patient experiences some pain and the therapist gets scared. The patient feels that fear and, and everything doesn't work, right? And in fact, you, you almost achieve the opposite of what you're trying to do. So that's a lot of the training is to give therapists the skill sets to be calm in those situations. Of course, being safe with the patient, but being calm and looking at different things because it's an experiment. So, you know, is it that the person needs to move differently? In the way that they're doing that movement okay so we don't again want to give this message that there's just one way of doing it there's a lot of videos for example of peter getting patients to relax and bend and breathe and stuff but there will be patients that need to move differently to you know effectively achieve flexion for them so it's having an open mind not just having one way of doing it not trying to put everybody into a box and there are patients who if they tilt more at their pelvis early so that you know, that's quite a different movement pattern. So it's it's using all of those skill sets. So I think if you examine them really carefully, you find a way of moving that is ideally less painful for the patient, but at least if not less painful, they can do more with the same kind of amount of pain. Then I think it's really rare that you do flare up these patients, um, but it's possible, you know, and, you know, we did have therapists, um contacting us and talking about what do I do if a patient's had a flare-up and yeah it's it's just going through the process again supporting them you know not panicking not you know not backing out completely from what you're doing but just re-evaluating the patient being willing to change your mind you know like all things we do we don't get it right always first time and that's part of re-evaluating patients making sure that they're going well with what what we're doing. You mentioned examine the patients carefully before exposing them to these fearful movements. With that, do you mean typical like pathoanatomical assessments that we do as physiotherapists or what do you mean by examine? So yeah, no, it's a good question. So I guess there's a couple of parts to that. So in terms of the exposure experiments, um, that was probably what I was talking about at the time. And when I said carefully, what I really mean is thoroughly. Like you know, this takes time and it's not just, I tried it one way and it didn't work. So, you know, I'll try one other way and then I'll give up. So it takes a lot of the motor relearning principles. You know, we try to get people to move in the way that's most functional for them. That's a key of cognitive functional therapy. 
And often you can get people with fairly minor changes in the way they're moving, the way they think about movement, relaxing, et cetera. You can often have, you know, big, big shifts in the person's experience of doing those functional movements. But there's more difficult patients where you absolutely can't achieve that day one and you need to break it down. You need to put them on a bed. You need to get them to learn to break that movement down in much, you know, in much more simple or controlled environments. So I guess that was what I was meaning. And I want to be clear that not everybody, you know, can walk out lifting five kilos off the ground, you know, day one, you need to decide who can and who can't. But it's also really important to acknowledge that this is all built on an examination that also rules out serious pathologies and understands pathology. So it's not ignoring pathology. That's critical, right? So parts of if if your examination suggests that this person might have serious pathologies, you know, fractures, cancers, infections, inflammatory disorders, et cetera, then absolutely you need to do whatever part of a normal medical, physical, you know, examination would help confirm or refute those diagnoses. So that that always comes first. Right. So I'm curious if you will be able to provide an example of how a physiotherapist explore movements with a patient, because that is not something that a lot of physiotherapists do all the time in a clinical practice, exploring movement. wonder if you have a ex- patient example in mind where a movement is painful and after having a session with a physiotherapist, exploring and experimenting, the same movement pattern became less painful? Sure. Look, the most obvious one is is a flexion bending kind of problem. So if we just go with a fairly simple example, the person, you know, says, you know, during the history, you know, you're asking about aggravating activities and they say, well, you know, it aggravates me to bend or lift things off the ground. And, you know, I'm thinking of some particular patient's and they basically said, and and I don't do that. And I believe that, um, you know, my my disc will will herniate or slip out, you know, if I bend. So if I have to bend, I I keep my back really straight, you know, like a kind of weightlifter, deadlift kind of position, and um, that that's how I lift and move. So so then in terms of the experiments, you know, with that patient, it would be just asking them to do what they normally do and looking at it and then trying to work through with them. Why do you move like that? You know, what's your understanding of the disc? What, what do you think is kind of happening with that? And, and so that's a game where we can't change movement if we don't change beliefs, you know, these things all, all interact together. and, And that's what I think becomes really powerful. And then basically asking people, would they be willing to try to move differently and giving them some, not telling them they will be better, that's really important, but giving them some logical kind of explanations of, look, one of the things I notice is that, you know, you're, you're bracing and guarding your muscles both sides. That's actually not a really normal way to move and you could demonstrate that to them and, you know, things. So again, different for every patient's work, walking them through that journey and picking up parts of their history that maybe don't fit with that and, you know, saying, look, you know, I understand you've been moving that way and, and this issue of validating is really important, but then kind of taking, so validating, you know, I understand why you've been doing that. It makes sense based on your belief about what's wrong with your back pain, but, you know, and then raising some different ways of thinking about movement and then asking people, would you be willing, you know, when you were sitting and I actually got you to breathe and relax, you know, your pain was less. Well, what do you think would happen if if you were to relax your back? As So actually asking them before they do it, 
And it becomes very powerful when, when somebody says, well, you know, I, I think I'll be really sore if I do that and say, well, would you be willing to to try this and just see what happens? And they'll nearly always say yes. Um, and and when when patients then have an expectation that something will cause pain, and then when they do it, they actually feel better or less pain. That's so powerful. It's so much powerful for than than us just going the way you're moving's wrong. That's what's causing me pain. Do it differently. So they come to that conclusion themselves. Um, and then getting them to do more and more and distracting them and getting them to, you know, squat. So they're thinking about their legs and, and then talking to them about, you know, why do you think that makes a difference, you know, if if your legs are getting tired? So there's so many facets, you know, um, to this. So it's not not a quick little movement. It's, it's walking through that with a patient. And, um, yeah, many of these patients find quite rapidly different ways of moving that are much more normal. Uh, much more relaxed for the patient um, and more comfortable for them. Great. One of the valuable things of the trial was that you weren't afraid of recruiting difficult patients. I was wondering, were there any cases where the back pain was so severe that almost every movement is painful? And how would a physiotherapist approach that? Do they approach one movement at a time? Or do they approach it in a different way? Yeah. Um, again, obviously, I didn't treat any of the patients in the trial, um, but I'm sure that we had patients who had pain in almost every movement. Absolutely, I would expect there would have been some of those, and there were some of those, you know, that the therapist treated in the training sessions, you know, that I observed um, as they were preparing for the trial. So, look, it's the same principles. It's it's going back to um, function. And it's finding a, a movement that that person really wants to be able to do, you know, and it, you know, it has to be realistic. Um, but to be honest, usually patients almost set their expectations too low. And it's saying, you know, so for somebody, you know, who can't do much, it might be, look, I just want to be able to get up, you know, and and walk comfortably to my car or, you know, whatever it is, you know, so something that matters. So I want to be able to sit more comfortably at work or, you know, and, and it's it's finding a target functional movement and then working towards that with all of those principles, you know, that we've said. And to be honest, often I think those people who are just pain, you know, painful in all directions, that doesn't make mechanical sense if you think about it. And that's the kind of conversation you'd gradually have with them. There is no pathology that should lead to you being sore to touch from T1, you know, to L5, and that should result in almost every movement hurting and constant pain once you've ruled out, you know, nasty, serious pathologies. So once you've got past that, to be honest, I think what our therapist told us is that these were some of the easier patients to treat. It was actually the ones with kind of low disability sometimes that were harder to, to help a lot. But the ones who were highly disabled, you know, it, you know, in nearly all cases, we were able to improve their function a lot through this approach. That is very interesting. And what you've said really exemplifies person-centered care. You've prioritized patient goal and basically work from there to help them regain function. That's really amazing. I have a few questions about the trial. First of all, the trial, in my opinion, was really well done, really well designed. The paper is really well written, very understandable, and it's a very high quality research. So I really appreciate that. But there may be a few questions that some of the more research-minded audience would have about the trial. One of the questions about confidence in treatment. So participants were told that the trial compared usual care 
with two evidence-based interventions when they're recruited. And the usual care group was told that their treatment options will be anything offered by healthcare professionals they would see in the community. And I was looking at the results, a lot of the baseline characteristics were very similar across the usual care group and the two CFT groups, except their confidence in treatment. So the majority of the patient in the usual care group was not certain, they, they were unconfident that what they're going to receive would work, whereas those um, in the CFT groups were confident. Considering that the average duration of care-seeking years was four to five years across the groups, it's not surprising that the usual care group have low confidence about what they're going to receive because they have been doing it for four to five years. So there's a large body of literature that demonstrates a strong positive relationship between beliefs and outcomes. So if they believe treatment's going to work, it's, it's highly likely that it's going to work for them. How does that initial confidence in treatment affect the outcome of the study, if any, do you think? Sure. Now, look, interesting question. So I guess there's a few parts to that. The statistical answer is we adjusted for it. So we looked at that in our analyses and we adjusted for those beliefs and it didn't change the effects at all. Beliefs are important, but they're not as in, like just simple beliefs in a treatment, you know, as you're describing. I don't think there's any good evidence that that changes long-term outcomes in the way you're talking about. So the, the idea that I believe a treatment's good for me I don't think that makes me better 12 months later. Do you know what I mean? If the treatment was rubbish and didn't do anything. So, you know, I think particularly our, our long-term results, I think are really robust to, to those differences in beliefs, you know, in the same way, yeah, whether I think a treatment's going to be good for me or not. Yeah, I, I just don't think there's, there's really any evidence that that affects long-term outcomes. And look, in terms of the control group, you know, as a researcher, this stuff fascinates me. I guess what I think people get too hung up on is that there's a right or a wrong control group. There's not. We we need every different control group. It was actually the first paper I ever, ever published in my PhD was talking about control groups because I realised the complexity around this. And I guess what I think is that, that they all answer a different question. So if we want to work out, is for example, just, just picking a silly example, if we want to work out, is the behavioural experiment the critical bit in CFT? Then we would do a trial where we did CFT versus everything, but you weren't allowed to do a behavioural experiment, okay? And that would be an interesting study to work out that. But for patients, what patients really care about is, does this intervention work? You know, I've tried everything. This is where I'm at. And what I really want to know is compared to just continuing what I'm doing, I think it answers the question that most patients care about. You know, you could debate for hours about placebos. So, you know, we do placebo control trials. And again, I've done them and they have value. But ultimately, do they always answer the question we want? If some of the effects are non-specific, placebo, you know, we could talk about this for hours and I won't, but defining placebo is much more complicated than you realise because it can be a placebo that just matches for time or matches for expectation or does it try to match every element of the treatment? So, you know, it, it's much more complex than that. So I think the key is always just to say, what's different between the control group and the intervention group, that's the question I'm answering or trying to answer. And we felt that this was the important question to answer at this stage. There'd already been trials comparing CFT 
um, to exercise and manual therapy. And those trials, you know, had found, broadly speaking, that CFT was better than exercise and manual therapy. Um, but our question was a little bit different. Those are very good points. Good point about the trial trying to address from a patient perspective what's going to work because I guess from a research standpoint you want to control as many independent variables as, as possible but the research really want to answer the patient question is this different therapy going to work better than the options that I currently have in my four to five years of care seeking journey so that's a really interesting point that being said, there are still a lot of differences between the care that the usual group received and the CFT groups. It could be hard to tease out. So for example, there were differences in funding, the number of people who received care, the healthcare, profession, uh, healthcare practitioners they received care from, and the number of consultations over the three-month study period. So the usual care group did not receive funding for their treatment, only 38% of them sought care for their low back pain throughout the three months, and only 21 of them sought care from physiotherapists and chiropractors, while everyone in the CFT group sought physiotherapists, and the median number of consultations was three as opposed to seven. How do you interpret this, and how does this affect the outcome of the study? Yeah, look, I think I think my answer is pretty similar to the previous one, that 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 was the design of the study. That was the question we were asking. And yeah, we don't know which or of those elements, you know, are critical, but but CFT is a package. And, and what we've wanted to do and what we have shown is that that package is a lot better than doing usual care. And that's a great starting point. And of course, into the future, you know, we want to test all sorts of, again, if we had enough money and enough time, you know, we'd run another 15 trials and tease out all sorts of those elements that that you raise. But I think personally, I think it's more, and not everybody would agree with this, but I've done a lot of trials at both ends of the spectrum. I think it makes more sense to start with a design like this that shows if a big package works well and if it works well compared to pretty much usual care or, or not a lot of care. And then then work backwards and try to work out, well, you know, can can we spend less time training therapists? Can we do, get the same effects in fewer treatments, et cetera? Um, but they're all interesting questions for the future. Absolutely. The RESTORE trial is a very important first step in acknowledging that CFT as a model works really well and more research down the road to unpack and further understand how do we implement this, what aspects works well, what aspect is not so that's a very fair answer. Any thoughts on why the group with motion feedback did not fare better than the CFT group without biofeedback? Yeah, interesting question. I suppose we're going to do a lot more exploration of this, by the way. You know, one of the things that we're really interested in is, is looking at all that movement data and trying to understand how much change in movement or change in other psychological factors and beliefs, et cetera, how much those mediated the improvements. But I suppose some of the hypotheses that we have at the moment are that the therapists were able just with their eyes and their skill set to identify important movement disorders and deal with them. And I guess ultimately it's about movements that change pain maybe more than 
saying that a movement's correct or incorrect based on you know biomechanical kind of data so yeah i think that at the moment that's what it would suggest either that movement is not critical to um you know to improvement and therefore the biofeedback wasn't crucial or that the therapists could actually identify and target the movement changes that they wanted you know just based on their normal clinical assessment mm-hmm. thank you for answering those questions those really help me understand the trial a little more I have some questions around the practical application of CFT because I think this is really one of the major directions that our profession is heading into and hopefully it will help change more lives uh, lives that are living in disabling pain so I'm curious for the time physios have with the patients in in the trial I really appreciated that the initial consultation was about 60 minutes and the follow-ups were about 30 to 40 minutes which are very similar durations with usual care you would get in the community with physios or chiropractors but it seems to me that there's a lot of ground to cover in initial assessment in the follow-up sessions a lot of things to talk about a lot of movements to experiment do physios in the trial find the time to be sufficient, no matter in the initial assessment or the follow-up sessions? Yeah, good question. Just one thing that I wanted to mention, it's it's not exactly answering your question um, yet, but just to be clear that I'm primarily a researcher on this trial in, in terms of the clinic. I am a clinician. I, I still see a couple of patients, but in terms of the actual the CFT intervention, and we've talked a lot about that today, obviously I'm not an expert in delivering CFT. I've watched all the training, you know, I believe I deliver it fairly well to my patients, etc. But I just want to be clear about that, that obviously in our team, it was Peter O'Sullivan and JP Canero, etc. that trained our clinicians. But in terms of that question, it's, it's a great one in terms of the time available. So I watched all the training. So as I've mentioned a couple of times, these clinicians treated one patient a week on these week, once a month sessions. And yes, initially, they definitely took more than an hour to do this in the training, um, to do those baseline assessments. But they got better at refining what they did, as we always do. And yeah, it's absolutely, it's a busy hour, but it can be done in an hour with practice and time. And I think one of the key things is dropping some of the stuff that's not helpful. You know, so one of the problems in physio practice is we we sometimes allocate time to things that aren't helpful or maybe even sometimes potentially harmful. Um, so it's it's really using your time well. It's focusing on the things that really matter. But absolutely, it's a busy first session for sure. And I know that some of the clinicians sometimes went over an hour with really complex patients and other patients they managed, you know, to get through um, that first session, you know, quite easily in that hour. That's great to hear that there is a learning curve to it. You can be trained and you can slowly identify ways to be efficient, yet not compromising efficacy of treatment. So that, that's a great thing to hear. And I believe um, more studies and more looking into the training process will be done in the next years. And that'll be very interesting to see. In terms of interviewing and unpacking pain, it, it's a fine line to walk between validating patient their feelings, their past experience, their pain, but also to identify the unhelpful beliefs. How does a physiotherapist explore pain beliefs and how do you know a belief is an unhelpful one, especially when patients are the experts of their own bodies? 
Yeah, look, good questions. And we've we've touched on some of these things before, but I suppose one of the elements of CFT that is so simple, but I think different to how we commonly practice is explicitly asking people. So, you know, we, we often make assumptions about people's understanding of pain or about what they think is causing their back pain. But how often do we just ask a patient, look, I'd be really interested to understand what you think is causing your pain. Why do you think your pain gets better when this happens, gets worse when that happens, et cetera, and, and just asking them. So I think therapists actually find that threatening. It's like we should have all the answers. We shouldn't be asking patients. But it's amazing how much patients respect that you want to understand and that you value their input. As you said, it's their body. So even things like that are validating for patients that, that you acknowledge, you ask, you know, you're interested in what they think. But then it's it's a journey. Um, and, you know, in terms of saying that the beliefs are wrong or not, again, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, we understand some things, you know, when patients say, I think my disc slips out and slips back in. Well, we know that's not the case, right? So there's some things that are just incorrect. But there's other things about beliefs about, you know, my back will be made worse if I do a certain activity and I do need to brace or guard or I do need to protect it. Well, the key is to use those exposure experiments and work out whether that is the case or not. But what we typically find is that a lot of those beliefs can quite quickly be shown to be unhelpful for the patient. And that's the key. But again, not, not assuming that that will always be the case for every patient. For some patients, there will be it will be helpful for them to move in a certain way. And it's that kind of idea of adaptive or maladaptive. So it's, you know, we know based on a huge amount of evidence, things that are typically helpful or not, but it's always bringing it back to the individual patient level, exploring it and seeing if we change those things. I mean, that's always what's powerful, right? So, so with a patient, it's always exploring, you know, if we can change that movement, can, can we get them moving better? Can we get them moving with less pain? Can we increase function? So there's a lot of question and answer back and forth between the physiotherapist and the patient. And to me, that would imply that it requires a lot of patient understanding of their own bodies, patient understanding of what the clinician is trying to get at, and I wonder if there were any, for example, language barriers or cultural barriers or just, you know, they're not on the same page in terms of a physiotherapist trying to ask the patient, are these limiting factors to the effectiveness of CFT? Yeah, look, communication is fundamental to everything we do, okay? And I, and I think most therapists would, would agree with that. But I think, as you said, it becomes even more important in CFT. If you're not a good communicator, you're probably never going to be able to deliver this kind of biopsychosocial care really well. You know, I think it absolutely requires really powerful communication to be clear, but to probe really difficult issues with the patient. You know, one of the things that that we talked about during the training and we observed is you can't ask a patient about a complex belief or something complex in their life that was going on, you know, around the time of their pain. And then they give you an answer and you kind of, that's very revealing and they share a lot about their life and you just kind of shut that down and move on. So you have to have, and you have to build the skills and the confidence to go there and to have those conversations um, with patients. So absolutely communication, being on the same page from the clinician's perspective is critical. From the patient's perspective, 
I guess we talked about before, that there's some people who, as you said, are just so easy to switch. I, I remember some patients walking into the training who'd obviously been reading a bit and they'd kind of understood about a bit about pain science and they were almost, they were halfway there already, but they they were basically saying, I just don't have the confidence to get there. I, I kind of know that my back's not broken. I kind of know I should be doing things, but but I just can't get there. And it's amazing how for some of those people, just just that little nudge and just that little bit of help and the confidence of a clinician, et cetera, can get them over that very quickly. But for other people, that's a much bigger journey, you know, and, and it's time. And again, in things like a trial, we put some boundaries, you know, it's that fine line in CFT in, in a trial of a pragmatic type of design like CFT. So we said roughly seven visits. There'll be some people who might need 15 visits. Do you know what I mean? But we really feel and the results supported that most patients get there much more quickly. But I don't think there's any doubt that there'll be some group of really complex patients that will need more and hopefully do better than our trial results because they get more and different therapy. Some patients might need an hour and a half on the first visit because they are just so complex. So again, it's back to person-centered care, individualized care, you know, what, what that individual person need, needs. Yeah, it is very important for the clinician to be an excellent communicator, to walk these difficult lines and ask the right questions. And I, I really appreciated the multidimensional profiles that clinicians create after the initial consultation. They really encapsulate the biopsychosocial model. So it's not talking about the model, but actually presenting the model. Can you explain a little bit what that profile is and how that profile inform the care provided by the physiotherapists? Sure. With that profile, are you talking about the things like the radar graphs yes. that the clinicians use? Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think these are super helpful. And again, I find them really helpful with teaching my physiotherapy students. And and I guess it's, again, the principles that we all know. We, we know that for most patients with musculoskeletal conditions, they're complex and there's many factors contributing to that. So it's not just a kind of pathoanatomical diagnosis. And so these frameworks get the clinician to think at the end of the examination, well, what are the key drivers? What, what do I think are really driving this persistent pain? And then obviously they become targets for care. And that's kind of so obvious. It's almost the impairment model, you know, that we've had for a long time, but it, it just puts it, you know, into practice. So it's asking the therapist to think about, do I think that the primary drivers for this individual person are cognitive factors or are they emotional responses to pain? Or are they physical factors, you know, that we would be more comfortable with, the weakness and stiffness, et cetera? Is there actually important pathoanatomy? This person has nasty, ridiculous pain, and they have an image that fits very clearly with that. So I think there's some sense that CFT is ignoring pathology. It's not the case. You know, the, these models and these frameworks are meant to just acknowledge them. But for many patients, we don't find a clear pathoanatomical kind of driver, or it's not a helpful target for the patient. So I guess they're the key elements. And, and you know, I'd really encourage people who are interested in CFT to go and read um, a paper that Peter O'Sullivan and colleagues wrote in the Physical Therapy Journal in 2018. And it's a really 
nice review and summary of what CFT is. It has three case studies where you can really see how these frameworks and this reasoning process is then applied individually to three different patient scenarios. But yeah, I think it's it's just a really sensible framework. Common question I get from patients, and I'm often asked to talk about diagnosis of back pain. So what does that mean? And I think this is really fundamental. So one of the key elements of CFT is the first part of the treatment is making sense of pain. So how do we make sense of pain if we don't have a clear pathoanatomical basis for someone's pain? You know, it's easy to say you've got pain because you've torn your anterior cruciate ligament in your knee, and people can understand that. Although even there, we know it's much more complex than that. So when we don't have that in back pain, we, we still need to give people the sense we can't say to patients, you've got non-specific back pain. We need to give people a really powerful, individualized understanding of their pain. And I think this helps enormously with that. As I think you understand, what that leads to is the therapist sitting down and basically drawing out the patient's pain and their history and kind of and often a kind of cycle that's led to this chronic pain. So summarizing, you know, where their pain started, how they responded, but drawing into that cycle these key elements, you know, how you respond to pain, the weakness you've developed, et cetera. And then that becomes a really logical treatment, you know, target for the patient. And I think that's so powerful. When you see that done well, you know, it's um, you can just see how the patient feels that the therapist understands their problem, that there's a clear plan to address their problem, and that's incredibly powerful. Very interesting how you put that radar graph, the multidimensional profile as a way to help clinician almost like impairment-based approach to the therapy. And I just, for, for reference for our audience, the categories in this multidimensional profile included cognitive, emotional, physical, pathoanatomy, lifestyle, social, sensory, and health. With that, I wonder, in the training, were clinicians trained to identify information that correspond to a particular category and that's how they formulate the graphs? Or do they mostly base on just how they understand what the patient is saying? They were definitely trained to make sure that their history taking in particular covered all of the domains that we know can contribute to pain. So yes, so to largely cover these domains. So for example, it was critical that they asked about lifestyle factors and explored those. Now you might find that there's nothing important, but you might find really important factors. So yes, it was important that the history was broad enough to cover these domains and they were trained to do that. Um, we assessed competency of the clinicians um, and that was an important element of this trial. You know, I think it's a real weakness of most physiotherapy trials of complex interventions. We just assume that they're delivered well. We kind of assume that the clinician is able to deliver them well, but the therapist needed to, to achieve competency. And part of that competency was that their examination broadly covered all of these domains. So they obviously would be aware if there was a problem or not. Yeah, that was excellent. I was reading the protocol paper and seeing how thorough the training was. It's, it's a long time, many sessions, and there were Peter O'Sullivan and JP Canero were mentors. They can reach out to them whenever there's a question, and that's, that's just really well done. 
CFT sounds like a framework that can be applied to many different pain cases. Do you see the possibility of this framework to be applied to other chronic pain cases, even uh, not limited to MSK, even neural, or other areas of pain? Absolutely. Um, I'm not currently involved in any of that. But again, in my teaching of students, I would absolutely point out to them how almost all of the principles of this approach should apply to almost all patients that we see. There's definitely work being done in patients with knee pain, for example, that Peter O'Sullivan and some of his colleagues are involved in. So kind of looking at um, how well this approach does or doesn't work for knee pain, for example. But again, if we bring it back to it's fundamentally a framework for delivering good biopsychosocial care, then it should work well in other conditions, you know, um, in other musculoskeletal conditions. But yeah, there's definitely work to be done there to run trials and actually see if that's the case or not. We've touched a little bit about this question, how will the work continue to develop? So we mentioned analyzing of the biosensor feedback, analyzing the qualitative interviews, what are some other things that the team is working on in the near and the far future? Yeah, no, fantastic. Um, look, you've you mentioned some of them. So we're very much interested in the mediators to try to understand, you know, what does need to change to improve function and pain. So to really understand at a most basic level how much of it is about movement, how much of it is about cognitions, et cetera. So lots of really interesting work um, to be done there. As I said, we want to look at moderators, which for those that get confused between mediators and moderators, moderators are the kind of, let's call it the subgroup who respond more or less. Um, and I don't think we want to do that to then say, well, here's a group of people who it doesn't, who don't do well. But if we find a group who it's not, who don't respond as well, yeah, we need to try to explore ways to, to help those patients. So there's that work. And in terms of future trials, you know, this, this trial, I guess, could be described as moderately pragmatic, but there were elements that were more like a experimental kind of design. So we want to move more and more towards pragmatic type of studies. And we're actually writing a grant application at the moment. So that would involve running this much more in routine care, for example. So maybe comparing the outcomes in clinicians who've been trained with CFT compared to patients presenting to, you know, physiotherapists, identical physiotherapists. We'd randomise the physiotherapists, for example, using a cluster design and see if the outcomes are different. So, yeah, lots, lots of pragmatic questions like that. We'd like to explore particular outcomes like patients on surgical waiting lists. Could we take those patients who are basically planned to have surgery and apply this care? And could we reduce some of the numbers of patients that proceed to go on to get surgery? Yeah, so lots lots and lots of interesting questions, lots of stuff to keep us busy for the next period of time. Very exciting. And I really look forward to seeing more work coming out from the research group. Where would our audience learn more about CFT, the trial, and follow the future efforts coming up from the trial? Yeah, so the trial itself is is freely accessible, um, although I think that was only for 50 days um, through the Lancet, but hopefully they can find that link to freely access. Um, and if anybody is having problems, I'm happy for them to contact me. There's a really nice appendix, and often people don't go and look at the appendices to papers, but the appendix has a lot of detail about the intervention and some kind of guidance that will help clinicians um, with that. So I think that's really helpful. 
I'd encourage people to read that summary paper on CFT that um, I mentioned before, that's in um, physical therapy in 2018. That's a really, really helpful paper. There's been lots of really interesting podcasts and I've really enjoyed listening to them myself that sometimes had one of the team like myself um, on the podcast, but at, you know, at other times, just different voices. So I think get different perspectives, you know, don't think that, you know, Mark's perspective is the right one. Listen to a range of perspectives, but I think, think you'll see a lot of common messages coming out of kind of sensible people about what the trial can tell us and what the trial can't tell us. So keep an open mind, understand that no one trial will answer all the questions. It's not possible. It's not, not our goal. Um, so just take our trial for what it is. But I think there's a really good news story here, you know, and it's not just about CFT. It's about, you know, one of the things we've talked about as a group is this trial builds on 20 or 30 years of work of many people, you know, to try to understand pain and understand the complexity of pain. And what Peter O'Sullivan primarily and his colleagues have done is very cleverly package that into a framework. Um, so I think, you know, I think this is, is exciting. It's a good news story, as I've said a few times, for patients and for clinicians, you know. So um, I think many clinicians are already trying to deliver this care, and that's great. We encourage them to continue to do that and try to improve how they do that based on what's written in this trial. Um, and hopefully in the future, there'll be more kind of training opportunities. And that is a real challenge, though, is how we roll out, you know, options for more people to be trained to a higher level. Did you also want to mention the website? Sure. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> so, yes, there is the Restore um, Clinical Trials website. And I'm Tiffany, I'm thinking you probably know the address. So you can help with that. But on that website, yeah, we've absolutely put a bunch of resources that, again, help understand the intervention, help describe the trial. So, yes, feel free to go and have a look at that. Hopefully you find that helpful. For audience's reference, the website is www.restorebackpain.com, and I'll put that in the episode description as well. Mark, are there any final words you'd like to add before we conclude the interview? No, I think that's it. So just thank you for your time. Thanks to your audience um, for listening. And yeah, if anybody has any questions, always happy um, for people to reach out to me. How would they reach out to you? Um, email, to be honest, is the easiest. I don't do a lot on social media. So so really just my email, which is mark.hancock at mq.edu.au. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on, your patience and answering my questions and the insight that you've provided to our audience. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Uh, to our audience, all the best to you and hope you enjoyed the podcast. <laughs> Thank you.